What you get out of seeing it together in the Manet Degas context is interesting because it's not as if Degas has a thing at that time that hits at that level. I'm Kate Brown, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest stories down to earth. One of the art events of the year is currently up at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. That exhibition is Manet slash Degas. And through more than 160 works of art, including landmark loans from dozens of institutions, it puts into dialogue two of the most famous French painters of the 19th century, Edouard Manet and Edgar Degas, born two years apart. The show has been a blockbuster and attracted a chorus of rave reviews. Artnet's art critic Ben Davis recently had a moment to go. And he spoke with me about what stood out to him about this major museum event. We also dug into some of the unexpected history behind a few of the artworks he discovered through the Met show, which may actually change how you look at Manet and Dega together and separately. Hey, Ben, how's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, excited to talk to you about this show, which is a truly big deal. Yeah, I've been seeing all the headlines and wondering if the lineups were really long. Were you waiting in line for a while? Yeah, well, this is a show that you have to get into a virtual queue for. You show up, you scan a QR code, and it'll tell you, if you're lucky, you have to wait 50 or 60 minutes to get in. But, you know, it's the Met Museum. There's plenty of good stuff to look at while you're there. Just get there early because they do run out of slots. Uh Uh-huh. Pretty good waiting room, I would say. <laughs> um, so this has like been a huge blockbuster deal. Lots of headlines uh-huh. covering it in all fall, calling it a triumph, an enthralling exhibition. Um, people seem to really love this show. Why is it such a big deal? What captivates everybody about it? Oh, that can be summed up in one word, Olympia. This is <laughs> a show that pairs two of the greats of the modernist art canon, but it is also the first time that Edouard Manet's painting Olympia has come to the United States. And that is one of the most famous paintings in art history. One of the most referenced, one of the most debated, one of the most talked about in its time, one of the most controversial. The painting is a celebrity in itself and would be worth going to if it was just that. But yeah, the show is this kind of face-off between Manet and Degas, and that draws people. It's every art critic's cue to break out some variation on the lead. Uh, What does greatness truly look like? Is it the brainy style of Manet or the spontaneous eruption of feeling represented by Degas? And for people who, which is a lot of people who pass through the kind of traditional romanticism to modernism art history, of course, the Paris to New York timeline of art history, the classic kind of now disputed or decentered narrative of art history. It's their cue to deploy, you know, all the knowledge that they have about 19th century France. It's a very entertaining show. I'm excited to talk about it. I think it's a weird show. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about that too. Cool. Yeah, I'm excited to get into all of that. And we will certainly talk about Olympia. Paintings like that don't travel often. So that is certainly a big highlight. But as you said, something that is so 
engaging about this is this sort of rivalry, this face-off, as you say. And, you know, the show was in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris before. Mm -hmm. It was similarly popular without the sort of cameo of Olympia, because that painting obviously lives in France. So these two painters, as you say, were rivals. They were competitive. They were colleagues. Their subject matter overlapped. What do you see in this juxtapositioning of Manet and Degas? And maybe you can also give a little intro to these two artists for those who are hearing about them or have heard about them, certainly, but maybe don't know that much about them. Okay, well, let's start with what you see when you come to this show. Sure. Every effort has been made to make this feel like a really special show. I mean, the curators and installation designers that I know seem very taken or perplexed by the deep purple walls against which everything is hung. And you sort of enter into this show and you are met with this wall that has a slash through the middle of it, this architectural slash, literally dividing the wall in two. And on one side is a self-portrait of Manet, and on the other side is a self-portrait by Degas. And then you go through the show, and it kind of tells their story in tandem. You come through a room that features a lot of portraits that Degas made of Manet, not a lot of portraits that Manet made of Degas. We'll come back to that. You go through rooms of basically juvenilia, rooms that show copies they made of the old masters as they were honing their craft. Then you get into the big set pieces, Olympia, and what Degas was up to at the same time. And the show proceeds as a series of compare and contrast rooms where it shows you, you know, how one of these men treated horse races and how the other one treated horse races, how they did nudes, how they did various literary themes, some of the portraits they did of the different circles of artists and literary types that they intersected with. And that is how the show feels. And so what was their relationship like? So I am not sure how central their relationship was to their work. That's an interesting thing about the show. They clearly had a friendship at a certain point. They knew each other, but a lot of these guys knew each other, you know, and they were both of the same class. They were both upper class men trying to make it as an artist. Manet was the more famous. They both have a kind of eccentric relationship to the Impressionist movement. Manet was kind of an elder statesman. You know, he's not a pure Impressionist. You know, he doesn't do the kinds of outdoor atmospheric scenes that you associate with Impressionism. But what he was doing blew people's minds when he was at it. This sort of sense of looseness, the way he was rethinking what a painting could be, the sense of just that the rules of painting were in flux, really inspired Impressionism. And in fact, when the Met Museum first acquired a work by Manet, they referred to him as an eccentric Impressionist, actually in a slightly almost derogatory way in their catalog entry, very amusingly. <laughs> Degas is like associated with Impressionism. He's kind of one of the big classic names associated with it. And he organized a bunch of the Impressionist shows. You know, he was kind of ringmaster of Impressionism in a certain sense, but his themes are very distinct in a way that some of the other ones aren't. He has a very unique vocabulary. I think people probably all know his dancers and his jockeys and so on. So they both had a slightly eccentric relationship to the big art movement of that time period. Supposedly they met in the Louvre in the early 1860s. There's a very funny anecdote that Manet was just 
a huge fanboy for Spanish art. That was the cool reference at that time period that all the cool kids were working with. Like Spanish art was the hot thing. And he came upon Degas doing an etching in front of a portrait of the Infanta Margarita Teresa at the Louvre. And supposedly he stopped and said to Degas, how audacious of you to etch that way without any preliminary drawing. I would not dare to do the same. And that is the start of their friendship. I love that story because you can't tell whether it's a compliment or an insult because mm. it sounds like a compliment, you know, how audacious you are, but it also could mean exactly the opposite, that it's like, I would never do it that way, my friend. You're working without preparatory drawings. It's a funny way to work. And I love it as an origin story because it kind of sums up the difference between the two of them and the difference that you do see in the show, that Manet is a real brain painter. Every painting that you see is like a crystal of thought. It's one of the reasons why it doesn't feel like Impressionism, really, despite its sometime kind of brushy and unfinished look. Like it really feels like there are like a thousand thoughts have gone into everything. The painting always feels a little stiff and self-conscious, actually. Yeah, very studied. Very studied. In a way, I think of as like kind of self-conscious, bordering on stilted. I always think of Manet as the original so wrong, it's right guy. That like the paintings look a little wrong, like there's something off about this thing. But that's what makes it stick in your head. It's only afterwards that you're like, oh, there's something weird going on here that makes it a little different from the normal way this subject has been depicted. And it's as if all the other ways it could be depicted are in the background. And it, it kind of has found just the right, wrong way to do it. And then Degas, you know, there he is etching, etching without a net without a preparatory drawing. And yeah, is really known for the opposite, like this kind of sense of spontaneity of capturing these sort of offhanded impressionistic moments of movement, particularly of figures. Yeah, that's so interesting. Their original moment of friendship was, a, you know, an insult wrapped up in a compliment. It says a lot about the sort of overall takeaway of these two shows, the one at the Orsay before, but also this one at the Met currently, is that there was this sort of rivalry. What tipped off that part of their friendship? Or was it kind of, as we're maybe seeing in this original comment, baked in from the beginning? Well, I'm really not sure how much of a rivalry it was. It's an interesting thing about the show. I mean, Degas seems to have cared a great deal about what Manet thought, which would make a lot of sense because Manet was the more famous. He was at the center of a lot of art scandals when they met. He was kind of almost like an art celebrity. I'm not sure that Manet cared that much about what Degas thought. And the show has all these compare and contrast of different themes, but they're also like conventional themes. You know, lots of artists were working in these things. It's not exactly like they're pinging off each other. There's a little bit of a forcing of hmm. this compare and contrast narrative that is a little bit odd. Right in the first gallery, there's this funny pair of works, a very famous story around this work by Degas called Monsieur and Madame Edouard Manet from 1868, 1869. And it's a painting that Degas made while well, they were friends in tribute to them, which is a picture of sort of Manet on the couch, kind of lounging, listening to his wife play the piano. His wife was his former piano teacher. And for reasons that are not clear and no one knows, after Degas gifted him this painting, Manet slashed it and cut out the part with his wife. And... There is a companion piece by Manet that is just of his wife. 
at the piano, like if, as if he was trying to correct the record or something like that. It's not clear why he did this or what it meant. Well, it's funny because we talked to the curator who organized the Paris show, and she said that he may have cut it because he believed that his wife had been rendered, quote, excessively ugly. Yeah. And that then Degas apparently like angrily took the painting back and gave him a still life. Yeah. Well, return to still life, a portrait of a bowl of nuts. <laughs> that Manet had evidently given him earlier in their friendship. And this was kind of like a breaking point for them. Degas hers like, I've given this guy who I think is my friend, like this painting, and he has done what you should not do to another painter that you respect, which is deface his work for whatever reason. And this was a, you know, a tiff and kind of a falling out uh, for these two painters. And then Manet dies much, much, much younger he dies of syphilis in 1883 at 51, and Degas lives until 1917, much, much, much later, and seems to, as people do as they grow older, become more sentimental. As he went on and ended up collecting a lot of Manet's work after his death, there's a room here of just artwork by Manet that Degas collected. It's really for me where this show is most convincing in putting these two painters together. Hmm. Well, I'm presuming that he didn't collect Olympia because that's at the Musée d'Orsay collection. But um, No, but he contributed to a subscription drive to try and get Olympia purchased by the French nation. So we know that he valued it. He was thinking about its importance historically. And we know that he did own, he purchased from Gauguin's estate, Gauguin's copy after Olympia that he had in his personal collection. So Olympia was in the mix in terms of how he was valuing Manet. Fascinating. Well, let's turn to that work since it is really, as you said earlier, the star of the show, bigger than Manet and Degas both and somehow in her presence. What does this work look like? And what do you get out of seeing a famous painting like Olympia, like in person and also in this context of these two artists that really sort of illuminating the Paris scene at the time? It's such a famous painting. It's kind of hard to look at it with fresh eyes. Like you see it and you're seeing it through the many articles you've read about it and times you've seen it reproduced and everything you know about it. You know, it's this very striking image of this pale white courtesan nude in her bed accompanied by her black maid and there it is after a painting by Titian. It very famously interpolates a Titian nude, the Venus of Urbino. That is more of a cheesecake work, the Titian. It's more of a pinup. And the scandal of Olympia is that Olympia, as I understand it, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what the name would be right now, but it would be like naming a painting like Candy or Tiffany or Madison or a name that's kind of like associated with a sex worker, essentially, a, a stripper. She's painted in this very frank way where it's like sensual, but it's also like she looks real. And people hated this painting when it came out. It was considered to be a little too upfront about what was going on. So a lot of, you know, the nude is a classical genre, but there's this kind of level of two-faced thing about it where it's like, you're looking at like a nude that's very openly meant to flatter the male gaze, but it's also supposed to be mythological. So it's supposed to be kind of elevated and exalted. You're not supposed to think about that. And Olympia was set in the present. This is a present day situation. I mean, among other things, the black maid marks it as a very contemporary Parisian scene because of the relatively new phenomenon of immigration. 
Yeah, it's an exciting painting to see. I mean, just to get a chance to marvel at the detail of it, to imagine what the impact of it must have been like. What you get out of seeing it together in the Manet Degas context is interesting because it's not as if Degas has a thing at that time that hits at that level. As a matter of fact, Olympia was shown in the 1865 Salon. That's where it was a scandal. And Degas himself got into the 1865 Salon, and you see some of the paintings he did, and there are these just kind of goofy mythological history paintings. The one that was in the Salon is called Scene of War in the Middle Ages, and it's just this kind of weird stilted. It's the kind of mythological history painting from this time period that verges on a kind of unintentional surrealism because everything looks so artificial and fake. And so what you really actually get by seeing them together is not like this jousting of great figures. It's that Degas kind of shows you the kind of sensibilities that were in the air against which something like Olympia felt kind of shocking in its contemporaneity, in its frankness about sexuality, and so on. I'm starting to feel a bit bad for Degas in all of this. He's starting to really feel like the beta of this duo. Are there any moments where he really shines in this show? He doesn't have his Olympia moment, maybe, or never did, but... Yeah, sure. I mean, Degas is a great painter in his own right. There are works like the Orchestra of the Opera from 1870 that are there, which is this painting that is a close-up. In the foreground is like this orchestra in the pit. A performance in the background, there are dancers on the stage, and the stage lights are on the dancers. So it's kind of this great chromatic contrast and it's a beautiful painting. But the show does not make a great case for Degas. That's one of the, is an absolutely baffling, weird thing about this show. That's in the title itself. Because, I don't know, Kate, do you notice anything weird about the title Manet Degas? It's like Siskel and Ebert. Like, if these are equal figures, why is the alphabetically second one first? In Siskel and Ebert's case, film show from the 90s, Ebert lost a coin toss. And so Siskel got to be first billing. But here the curators have picked that it's Manet Degas. And the presentation of the show is about this duel of painting between these two great figures. But in the title itself, it sort of like tacitly acknowledges it's actually the name of the show really should be Manet and Degas in parentheses. Because, you know, this is a show full of Manet masterpieces. I mean, you've got The Dead Christ with Angels. You've got The Balcony. You've got The Execution of Emperor Maximilian. And on and on and on. You've got Olympia. You could have just organized a show specifically around Olympia. And then here's Degas brought in as an equal partner to play against this. And there is nothing in the show of Degas that would give you a sense of him as a figure of the stature of Manet. The show does, in various ways, serve him very poorly. I don't know, I'm not exactly sure what to make of it. I think, you know, these kinds of modernist great men and very occasionally great women shows are the bread and butter of museums. You know, this is a blockbuster now and brings in the crowds because the names you know, have embedded audiences in them. Like I said, people have studied and studied and studied these figures. It's just like Pavlovian reflex to respond with large numbers of adjectives and adverbs in florid prose to them. You know, I think that there's a feeling that even though 
Every generation is reintroduced these figures and history treats them in new kinds of ways that you do need new reasons to do modernist blockbuster shows. And a recent thing has been these kind of duet shows. It's like people want the hits, play the hits, but how do you make the hits feel new? You do a duet. And so I think that's what's going on here. They feel a little bad about doing a Manet show. And so they brought in Degas to kind of like spice it up, you know, give some kind of other story, other narrative hook for things. It serves Manet great because he looks so visionary and forward thinking and influential. But among other things, Degas is a later bloomer than Manet, and Manet died younger. So the whole thing just doesn't totally serve Degas at all. Hmm. If you hadn't have told me about or pointed out alphabetical problem, I would have just thought that maybe Manet is just the superior painter. And Degas, like when Manet cut off the painting of his wife, he kept it his entire life on his wall. Clearly, like he also knew on some level that he had to like impress this person. So the thing is, they're different kinds of painters. And One of the effects of a show like this is to do them full justice, you have to show them in different ways. Like Manet is really a painter of, and this is a misused and abused term, but of masterpieces, like single images that kind of capture a lot of energy flows into them and become like containers for a lot of symbolic energy. That's not really how Degas works. I mean, if you close your eyes and think of a Degas painting, you probably think of a ballerina, but not one of the ballerina paintings. You probably think of lots of them because that's what they're about is this like flow of movement and that how, you know, there are all these different poses and moments when you observe a figure that become different things. He's really a painter of moments. And there's nothing in this show because it's being shown under the sign of Manet, so to speak, that gives you that sense of Degas. There's not a room where you see how great Degas is it unwinding a theme across a whole number of things and how Manet compares in that sense. Hmm. Well, there are some major hits in here and we have clear impressions of both of these artists, but there are some paintings that I didn't know about, for example, like there was one painting of a Navy battle that you wanted to speak about by Manet. Could you tell us about that painting? Yeah, this is a painting that I did not know before. It's the Battle of the USS Kearsarge and the CSS Alabama from 1864. I guess it's in the Philadelphia Museum of Art Collection. I hadn't seen it. It came as a surprise to me here. It's apparently Manet's first seascape and also first known painting of a current event. And what you see is a painting of two ships One is going down, is sinking. It has smoke billowing out of it. That occupies the center of the canvas, and there's a very turbulent sea. And through the smoke coming off of the boat in the near background, you see another ship, which is the Kearsarge, which its Stars and Stripes banner seems to float in the air in the smoke independently. Then in the foreground, there is a French flag vessel that seems to be going to rescue people coming off of the sinking boat. So this is a really interesting painting that I didn't know a lot about that depicts a historical event I had never heard of from June 1864, the Battle of Cherbourg, which is a obscure naval battle that happened off of the coast of France that was an episode in the American Civil War. So there was this Confederate ship, the Alabama, that had been harassing commerce between the U.S. and France and making a lot of trouble. It had been hunted by a U.S. boat, the Kearsarge, who 
finally tracked down the Alabama, fought in the harbor. They couldn't have a battle on French waters. So when the Alabama realized that it was cornered, they were escorted in international waters by the French Navy. And then a battle commenced where these two boats circled each other until the Kearsarge scored a hit and brought down the Confederate boat. This was like for obvious reasons, a really sensational event in the French media. I mean, as it was happening, like crowds gathered to watch this naval battle happen. It was reported in all the papers. And Manet whipped out this painting really fast. Like he was out the next month after the naval battle and hung in the window of a print shop. So a real breaking news painting. And seems a little like out of character for him to paint so quickly, but also to paint like an action scene. I think of, you know, these very studied, still figures of this capturing spirit, you know? Totally. I mean, I think it's still weird. Like, I think that Manet has a gift for making it weird. And if you look at some of the other depictions of this battle, because it was quite frequently depicted, you have a much clearer image of both of the ships facing off. Usually there's smoke because of the nature of the combat, but this image in particular really captures the chaos of battle. And like I say, the detail that I notice is how the Stars and Stripes seems to hover in the smoke in this painting. It is, in this show and in general, is taken as a sign of Manet's politics, his particular brand of French republicanism. France had an emperor at this time, Napoleon III, that Manet was not a fan of. And the politics of the U.S. Civil War in Europe were complicated. France was neutral, officially, but basically wanted the war to end so he could import cotton again. The French economy took a big hit from not being able to have access to U.S. cotton. And at various points in the U.S. Civil War, Confederate delegates were really trying to get Napoleon III to intervene on the side of the Confederacy, and he almost did. At a certain point in 1862, Napoleon proposed a pause but in the two sides that he hoped would, in the war, basically get the cotton flowing again. And it was only the fact that the Union took New Orleans that made that plan unworkable. I think there is something to the idea that this is like, this is Manet kind of excited about the horse that he like is rooting for has won. I think people tend a little bit to overstate artist politics in general and Manet's politics specifically. I mean, I think it's comforting. It's a nice thing to have an artist you like, an artist who has had a great role in the history of painting, to be generally on the side of what we consider the correct side of history. But it's also was just an extremely sensational event. There's definitely a hunger for depictions of it in France. How deep his convictions were, I don't know. It's a side of history that I had not seen before. Also surprising to me that related to American politics at all. Like I yeah, think of these very hermetically sealed off French Parisian artists that were painting other bourgeois people. And to that note, another painting that you were very captivated by was Degas' A Cotton Office in New Orleans from 1873. And this is also a painting that is like focused on American politics. Yeah, well, this is kind of the other side of it. So this show is a compare and contrast Manet and Degas. And among other things, it compares and contrasts their political temperaments, which were very different. I mean, they fought together in 1870 in defense of France in the Franco-Prussian War. 
But they both left France before the Paris Commune. There's an etching in this show by Manet of victims of the massacre of the Paris Commune, published in 1874, sometime after these events. Basically, Manet was not a radical communard himself. As you might expect of a man of his class and his temperament, he felt sympathy with the victims, but not with their cause exactly. Can you say shortly what the Paris Commune was, in case someone's hearing that? Yeah, yeah. There's a huge political disaster, the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870s, and France basically loses. And in the chaos after that loss, there's the radical uprising in Paris, where people take over the city. It's like considered like a proto-communist uprising in history, and demand that society be run in a radically democratic very chaotic new way. And that is crushed by Versailles, by troops. There's a huge massacre. So that was a landmark political event of the age. And while Manet is working on this etching in the aftermath, Degas, for his part, is very shaken by these events in France. And in 1872, he decides to go to New Orleans to visit his family because Degas has American ties. He's also still in search of artistic identity. The first Impressionist exhibition, the one that defines the movement, won't happen until he comes back in 1874. But while he's in the U.S., he paints this work that you see in the Met Show, a cotton office in New Orleans, which depicts the family firm that Degas is connected to. At the center of the canvas, or sort of slightly off-center, but the most prominent visual object in it is this bright white mass of cotton. And then all around it in this office space, you see various of Degas' relatives who are reading the newspaper, looking for news of the commerce and politics of the day. You see Michelle Musson, who is his uncle, who runs the firm, handling cotton in the foreground, like fingering a bulb of cotton in the background. You see some of his other relatives over the table of cotton, like negotiating deals over it. It's a striking painting in the sense that cotton is such a significant world historical commodity in terms of empire and in terms of the history of industry. Like I said, it was to get the cotton flowing again to the French textile industry that that was the reason that Napoleon III wanted to intervene on the side of the Confederacy or wanted to end the U.S. Civil War prematurely. And here's Degas giving us a tour of his family uh, firm, his family fortune extremely linked to U.S. slavery and the cotton trade. His mother's dowry was paid for by the sale of an enslaved person. His family went back to the French imperial domination of Haiti and ended up in New Orleans after the uh, Haitian Revolution. The catalog to the show points out he even had family ties to Jefferson Davis, the head of the Confederacy. And in this painting, or in the information around it, is there any sense that he has a skeptical position at all towards what his family's been doing in the U.S. and the slave trade? Not really, no. I mean, I think that Degas, I mean, in 1862, when France is thinking about intervening in the war, one of his uncles wrote an open letter to Napoleon III saying, you know, like, please, we should intervene on the side of the Confederacy in explicitly racist terms. And there's no real reason to think that Degas did not 
share those basic convictions, were the convictions of many Europeans in that day. There's honestly not a lot of great writing about it. He didn't paint a lot of black figures in New Orleans. He wrote about the street life in New Orleans in pretty, you know, what I would call patronizing terms. What's interesting is that by 1873, when this painting is made, the Degas family cotton fortune is kind of in decline, partly because they invested very heavily in the Confederacy. They put a lot of their fortune in bonds to back the Confederacy. Many people in the family fought for the Confederacy and their fortune is in disarray. It's the reconstruction period. Slaves are no longer in formal bondage, but there's every effort being made. There's a titanic public battle in order to get things back to the way they were, as close as they could be without legally reinstating slavery. In the time period that Degas was in New Orleans, there's a very contested election. It's like marks the end of Reconstruction, essentially. And then the month after Degas leaves, he leaves in March 1873, there's the Colfax Massacre in Louisiana, one of the worst incidents of racial violence after the Civil War that basically reinstitutes a kind of reign of terror over black people. His relatives, the people you see in this painting, they came to blame their financial woes on freed black people and on northerners who were taking their business and ended up joining the White League, which was a white supremacist terrorist organization that went on to reinstate some of the worst aspects of Jim Crow, so on and so on. You know, I've read readings of this painting where it's like that this painting suggests the decline of the family because the figure in the foreground, Michelle Musson, looks kind of melancholy. There's an empty chair next to him that suggests, you know, some kind of like absence. But I really read it as more like kind of romanticizing, you know, has a kind of that romantic flavor of some depictions of the South. And he intended it to be sold to a Manchester textile baron who was interested in the cotton trade. And I think it served basically a double role as Degas is looking for new subject matter in this time period, changing things up, looking for a reset and refresh in the United States. But also, you know, the Degas company was in poor situation. And I think it's kind of also just trying to strike a positive note for the company. Also, an important painting, it is the first painting by Degas that is ever acquired by a French museum. It's not just any other painting in his oeuvre. It is like an important painting in terms of how he finally entered art history. Wow. Well, that's certainly extremely dark. I didn't know any of that and uh, a lot to process. So with that in mind, what are the big lessons and takeaways of the show about these two figures? Yeah, it's a lot of history. I mean, I just wanted to bring together some actual of the stories and deepen the compare and contrast a little bit by looking at two specific incidents and two specific works. But like I said, I don't know if the show works as a painting show about Manet and Degas. I think you will leave the show with a probably the best possible introduction to Manet if you're arriving at it the first time, and probably a pretty weak and bad introduction to Degas if you're arriving at him the first time, on the level of painting. On the level of social history, what we were just talking about, I don't know if the show is set up to tell these stories in the fullest and most deserving way. Although I think the catalog and the text and the audio guide for this show also doesn't shy away from them. I do want to say that. I think that the tension has been made to address some of these issues. And I think 
the first show organized around Manet's Olympia, which is one of the most significant paintings in art history, and is a painting that has been looked at anew recently. Like, in recent history, the maid figure in Olympia has gotten a lot more attention. There was a very celebrated show focused on the black figure in European art recently that paid a lot of attention to Manet's model in that work, and she posed for him multiple times. And the emergence of the black figure in European art was obviously the product of a lot of the same political history of French empire and the history of the European entanglement with the slave trade in Africa, the New World, and so on. So I think that there is a way that the social history that we were just talking about is really important in a show that centers Olympia, even if it were me and I were organizing the show and I were getting the Olympia to the United States for the first, maybe only time, I might've done a little different show and may not have incorporated Degas in such, in my opinion, odd way. Nevertheless, I think that Joe does allow us to have some of these conversations and think about the networks and entanglements of European art in this time period in relevant and contemporary ways. I'm really fascinated now to go back and look at some of the coverage of the Paris show and see how they dealt with these problematic histories of these two artists in the French context. Absolutely, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Ben. Um, this has been absolutely fascinating and illuminating. I really appreciated chatting with you today. Yeah, thanks for um, being a sounding board, Kate. Always a pleasure. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Carolyn Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week.